Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word this morning. We're just going to read one verse. So you won't be standing a long time today. But I will say this, this one verse, this one verse could explode your universe. This one verse uh, uh, will change your life. It's something Jesus said, uh, kind of uh, in the the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read it. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And Lord God, we thank you that we can read your word today, even if it's one verse. We thank you, Lord, that even packed in this one verse is probably more than we could handle in a lifetime if we spent our whole life looking at this one verse. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for your presence with us. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts to you today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, hypocrite is a strong word. It's not the kind of word you use with your friends. Now, some say they don't go to church or believe in Jesus. You can finish the sentence because there's so many hypocrites in the church that's like saying i'm not going to go to the doctor because there's too many sick people there that's like saying i don't want to go to restaurants because there's too many hungry people there basically it's just the way it is i think that people give the church a bad rap Uh, there are hypocrites everywhere but in the church you would expect to encounter love all the time right the place of love. The reality is that where there are people, there is trouble, there is hardship and hatred and sorrow, but also love and kindness and joy. It's just you never know what you're going to get with people. In the church, you will find people with spiritual needs, very deep needs, some of whom do things for the wrong reasons. We do things for the wrong reasons sometimes. But most in the church realize they have a tendency towards hypocrisy. And so they go to where the cure can be found. Amongst a fellowship of people, imperfect people, who worship a perfect God and are committed to the process of engaging in God's word, in prayer, in fellowship, in outreach, in the name of Jesus. The true church of Jesus Christ. The true church of Jesus Christ is where honest people gather to acknowledge their dependence on God. That's what we're here to do today. In hopes that he will rub off on us. Actually, that he would change us. He would transform us. Those who come to God by faith in Christ are transformed by him. Those who come through grace, through grace, they come to the right place to the only one, the only one who can bring about such change. And by the way, if you think about it, every other supposed cure for the the human tendency to be false is a fraud. It is false, actually. Every other claim is actually hypocritical, if you think about it. They pretend to be what they are not and do what they cannot, what they promise they can't deliver. There is no other cure but Jesus. Now, obviously, God is not a fan of hypocrisy. 
Well, let me tell you what I'm going to say, first of all, and then I'll attempt to say it. God does not approve of good deeds done for the wrong reasons. God does not approve of good deeds done for the wrong reasons, and we need to know how we can please God and how we can live for the right reasons. Now, I'm going to want us to look at several things today, God's warning to us that we see in this one verse, as well as the whole idea of our devotion to God and what it really means to have God's approval, what it really means for God to be pleased with what we do. So that's what we're going to do today. Basically, we know that we need to have a humble, um, expectant heart, a teachable heart, but there are some steps along the way to getting there, uh, the steps along the way in developing that kind of heart and life. Now, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. We're almost, well, we're in the second chapter now of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the sermon so far has dealt with the character of Christians. The character of Christians seen in the Beatitudes, as well as their influence in the world, salt and light. And then their, their heart attitude. We've been looking for several weeks now at the heart attitude of Christians that flows from a relationship with Jesus and that affects everything in life, from marriage to friendships uh, to community involvement and even our attitude towards the world. Today we're beginning a new section dealing with a Christian's outward deeds. But we do. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48, focused on the teaching of the law. Jesus was setting the record straight. What they had heard from their religious leaders, had been twisted. They had twisted what God had said, and he was setting the record straight about what God's word actually said, what it meant, and how it applied to life. But now in this passage, basically it's chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, it's focusing on the practice, basically what people did as a result of their beliefs. Now Jesus, in this passage, in the wider passage here, gives three examples. Three examples of how someone's faith could be practiced for less than sincere reasons. How they can be expressed in an insincere or hypocritical way. Um, How seeking the approval of others can block uh, a life of following Christ. Consistent interaction with Him. And it could lead to a life marked by hypocrisy, known by being hypocritical. Now, the three acts, very important to the Jews, are listed in these 18 verses, three acts. They are giving, praying, and fasting. Being generous to those who are in need, talking to God, and being so intent on on seeking Him that you do without your food at the appointed time that you usually eat your food. So giving, praying, and fasting, very important to the Jews. Now Jesus is pointing out that His disciples, His followers are to quietly serve rather than to call attention to themselves. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 is a general introduction uh, to the larger passage, uh, verses 2 through 18, with the idea that all acts of devotion to God are not to be done for the applause of people. Jesus is showing the way to meaningful, uh, growing, worthwhile, acceptable service to God. So he begins verse 1 by saying, Beware! Beware! Uh, proesco is the Greek word if you 
keep track of things like that. It's, it's, it's an important word. Beware. It means to take hold of something, to grab hold of something and pay attention to it, to set your mind upon something, literally to hold your mind fastened upon it, like the, the vice grip of your mind on the thing that now is about to be set. Basically, it's be on guard. Be on guard. Be careful. Be wary of what? He says, of practicing your righteousness to be seen by men. Practicing them before people to be noticed. To be recognized as the one doing the thing you're doing. Now, in the previous chapter, we, he, Jesus has spoken of how your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. How it's the righteousness of Christ really, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that, that Jesus is talking about. It's God's righteousness. But here, righteousness is referring to general acts of devotion to God. General acts that are based upon our relationship with Him that we do out of our love for Him. So, for example, if your heart is right with God, you're going to want to, to serve Him. You want to minister in His name and, and do good deeds, not do evil deeds, Okay? So that's kind of the idea. And he says, beware of this, of, of trying to do this for attention to be noticed. The word to be noticed is a theomai in Greek. It's where we get the word theater. It's the idea of watching a stage show, which was common in those days. They had theaters where actors would come in. They would wear masks. The idea is of watching a stage show and of a dramatic moment that calls attention to the ones that are acting. The ones that are doing the portraying of another. Well, God's warning here, and it's the first thing we see, is, that, is this. Don't serve God to be noticed by others. Quite simply, don't serve God to be noticed by other people. Don't toot your own horn. In fact, verse 2 says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. That's where that idea comes from. Don't toot your own horn. That's what hypocrites do, Jesus says. So don't do that. Jesus, by the way, is the only one in the New Testament that uses the word hypocrite. It's a Greek word, hypocrites. It's used 17 times by Jesus. You see it several times in this chapter right here, in verse 2, as the hypocrites do. Don't do that. Down in verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, when you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Then you go over to chapter 23, those, those woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, uh, many times in this chapter as well, let me highlight a few. Notice who he's addressing. Matthew 23 and verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Calls them hypocrites. Told you you didn't use this word with your friends. Verse 13. How about verse 15? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're going to see a pattern emerge here. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27 and 29. The same thing. And it was all based on what they had done in chapter 23, 1 through 5. He starts by saying this. And he's saying this to the crowds, by the way, and to his disciples. 
Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the seat of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Verse 6, they love the place of honor. Verse 7, they love respectful greetings. Jesus goes on to say, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. Not the other way around. So Jesus used this word, uh, hypocrite, and he gives this word moral implications. Moral importance. Why does he do that? Because over and over again, he's making the point that the heart matters. That it's from the heart. It's not the, just the outward deeds. But it's, it's from the heart. Hypocrite originally referred again to Greek actors who wore masks to play various roles. And while they did that, they were hiding their true identity. Well, that, that's entertaining in an acting you know, context. In real life, though, it is a sin to be avoided. It's inherently dishonest. Uh, hypocrisy came to refer to someone who gives a false representation of themselves, Someone who practices deceit or guile. Someone who wants people to see them not for who they really are, but as someone else. Someone they're not. It's a fake. It's a counterfeit. And the question for us to ask ourselves is, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Our motives are important. It makes me think of high school reunions. High school reunions. Uh, I remember my 10th high school reunion. Everyone was there trying to impress each other financially and uh, vocationally, and, and uh, no one had much to show 10 years down the road. There were a few. And I remember my 20th high school reunion back in um, 2000, and everyone was still trying to impress a bit, vocationally and financially, but the edge had come off, and now there, was a, there were attempts to connect relationally. People that wouldn't talk to you 20 years earlier really wanted to get together and talk. Now, if, if they have our 30th uh, in, next year, uh, what I'm expecting is is less trying to impress financially and vocationally and more trying to connect relationally. Because people are realizing, hey, that stuff doesn't really matter. What matters is, is relationships. So, you know, why do we do what we do? What's your motive? Who are you trying to impress? Who do you, need, who do you think you need to impress? It can't be noticed, uh, can't be to be noticed, can't be to gain applause. Um, and here's why, because God doesn't approve of good deeds done for the wrong reasons. Quite simply, they're rejected. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't do good things because we love Jesus. Uh, but obviously, this is uh, something that needs to affect how we do what we do. How we do what we do as Christians. Our devotion. Our love for God expressed in words and deeds that honor Him and help other people. Good things that can be done for the wrong reasons. Jesus is not saying 
that we shouldn't do good things. They are to be practiced. They are to be seen. Yes, even seen. People should see the good things you do just for the right reasons. Basically, if you want to please God and not be a hypocrite, then do good so others won't notice you, but they'll notice God. Do good deeds so that others will notice God at work. Now, right away, you're saying, well, wait a minute. This seems to contradict what this verse is saying. The Bible teaches that we are to do good publicly so others will notice God. Jesus says our acts of devotion should be noticed. Not only they might call attention to him, only to call attention to him. Where do, where do I get this idea? Well, it's uh, over in chapter 5, verse 16. We've been through this. Let me do some, some review here. Uh, Matthew five sixteen. Jesus said, Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not that they would see your good works and glorify you, which is what 6.1 is talking about, but that they would see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Now, chapter 5, verse 16 seems to be in opposition to chapter 6 and verse 1, which says, don't do it to be seen. The following verses in chapter 6 go on to say, do your stuff in secret even. Have your giving be in, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even let yourself know what you're doing. Hide it from yourself. Now, so is this contradictory teaching? What's going on here? Say, not at all. Not at all. Chapter 6, verse 1, uh, don't practice your righteousness to be noticed. And 5.16, let your light shine so people will notice. Seem to say the opposite, but they're dealing with different issues. Verse 1 of chapter 6 is dealing with the desire to be noticed, the desire to be seen. Chapter 5, verse 16 is dealing with the desire to Uh, excuse me, the fear of letting people know who we belong to. The idea of being afraid to say that we belong to Jesus. Uh, 5.16 is when you're lacking courage. Let the light shine. 6.1 is when you can't wait for the applause. Do that in secret. Let that one go. Bonhoeffer said that our activity must be visible but never done for the sake of making it visible. Our activity must be visible, but never done for the sake of making it visible. See, God's glory is the end result of both verses. The question we need to ask is, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for what we do? Who are we looking to get credit from? Or are we giving credit to God? Don't steal God's glory. He's not going to share his glory with anyone else. Don't magnify your actions, Jesus is saying. Magnify God who inspired and enabled the actions. Don't call attention to the good things you do, but to the giver of the ability to do the good things. Different mindset. So the warning is against doing what we do to impress other people. It's the wrong way to do the right thing. And it's not enough to do a good deed. The deed must be done in the right motive or else it's wasted. 
gone. In fact, Jesus later in this chapter says, when you do it for that, for the wrong reasons, you are fully paid up. There is nothing you'll get from that. You have received your reward in full. It's an accounting term, meaning paid up. It's not enough to just do the good deed. You've got to do it for the right reasons. But why do we sometimes do the, the good things for the wrong reasons? Why? What, why do we go there? There's, there's a lot of reasons we go there. Sometimes, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my parents asking me, why did you do that? And I could never tell them why. I never knew why. I couldn't say because I'm a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. I just didn't know that. I'm like, I don't know. So why do we do the right things for the wrong reasons? Why? Well, sometimes it is plain and simple to get attention. Just to get attention. Other times, though, it's to be accepted. So that people will accept us. We, we figure out what we need to do, and so we do that because we know that if we do that, all will be well relationally and no one will be upset with us. Again, sometimes we do it to avoid someone's anger. Or uh, the reverse expectations. If you don't do this, we're going to be upset. One thing we know for sure, we need to be uh, seeking God's approval. God's approval. That God would be pleased with us and not seeking people's approval, but many of us live lives that are one constant uh, treadmill of trying to please other people. The idea behind seeking God's approval is that we should live for an audience of one, as Oz Guinness put it, uh, play for an audience of one, for God alone, the one who we have with whom we have to do. See, the last part of verse 1 says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. No reward. So there's rewards. Now you're perking up a bit, aren't you? Yeah, there's rewards. There's going to be some, some goodies given out. You know, and this, by the way, is not the thing that everyone gets a trophy, okay? That's just wrong. Um, uh, but here's the thing. We, we do think in terms of getting a trophy, getting called up on stage and getting presented a medal or, or something, right? A cash prize, maybe? We think in that way. We think the term reward, and it's like, show me the money, right? Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. First of all, when you think about rewards in the Bible, Jesus does not talk about material reward. What kind of reward does Jesus promise? Well, pain, suffering, Maybe even death for your faith in Christ? That's a reward. You're not looking at me like you think it's a reward. That's a reward. Jesus promises the opposite, what many of us want. But see, God's rewards are spiritual. God's rewards are not material. And they will seem like nothing to the worldly minded. Like, ah, who wants that? I don't want to do that then. Let's think about it for a moment. What kind of rewards might Jesus get? See, he says, if you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, you have no reward. You already got your reward when you got congratulated. Okay? Um, No reward with your Father in heaven, which means there are rewards to be given. Well, here's, here's a reward. How about this? The joy of serving the King of the universe. The joy of serving God Almighty. Little old us. Being able to serve our big God. Wow. There's a reward. How about, how about being used by the king of the universe for his glory, no matter what the cost? Even if we lose our life for it. 
How about the privilege of serving God more, more opportunities to serve? How about someday seeing Jesus face to face in heaven? How about that? That's a reward. Beautiful reward. But when we do things only with the goal of glorifying ourselves, the value is all lost. The value is lost right away. William Barclay said it this way. It says, if you're always thinking in terms of what you're earning for what you do, you're always thinking in terms of what you're earning for the work that you do, you're missing it completely. Then you start seeing God as an accountant or a judge. And you view life in terms of law rather than love. See, if, you, if we love deeply, we love God deeply. If we love God humbly and even self, self, selflessly, then we, we would give all we have and still think we owe more. We would give all we have and not think a penny is owed us. Or even a bit of, of what we would call a positive blessing. Well, God, I've done this. I think I deserve this. doesn't work that way. He who serves in love is always in debt. In a good way. The last thing that ever enters his mind is that he should be paid back for earning a reward. It's the person that, that, that uh, gives all they have and is genuinely surprised when they're noticed by it, for it. But the paradox is this. It's the one who calculates what is owed gets nothing. The one who adds up on their ledger what God owes them gets nothing. And the one whose only motive is to love gets everything. Wow. What did Jesus say? John chapter 12 and verse 26. He said, if, uh, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. It's a good idea. And then he talks about this. He says, and the one who follows me, the Father, my Father, will honor him. That all that we do should be done for him. And the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious hypocrites put a lot of confidence in themselves. They put all their eggs in the basket of being recognized by people. And so they receive the reward of attention from people, but no blessing from God because what they did, what they did for the wrong reasons. They were, in effect, doing it for themselves, not God. Let me say it again. God approves of, of good things done for the right reasons. Your good deeds, by the way, won't get you to heaven, though, you know. Someone could take them and say, well, hmm, I could, uh, hmm, as long as I practice my righteousness to be, to be noticed by God, then my reward will be getting to heaven because look at all the good things I've done. Oh, never. Never, never. That won't ever work. It goes contrary to the biblical teaching. The good deeds won't get you to heaven, but they will, once you come to faith in Christ, they will keep you in line with God. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Well-known verse. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> all about God making us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not of yourselves. Verse 8. For by grace, God's unmerited favor toward us. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. 
not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's been made abundantly clear over and over again. And in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should live in them, that we should operate in that sphere of doing what is right. It keeps us in line with God. It's good deeds being the outflow of the life of Christ in us. How about Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, in the context of letting God's word richly dwell within you, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, because it says that the word of Christ richly dwells within you, and you are teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. There's our, our line to God the Father through Jesus. Verse 23 of this chapter says, whatever you do, do you work from your heart? Do you work from your heart? And as for the Lord rather than for men, it's mirroring what Jesus said. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward, there it is, of the inheritance. Life forever with Him. Because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Think about it. If you do it for some other reason, you're not serving God. You're either serving yourself or the object of, of who, you want to get, who you want to get the applause from. See, we want to get credit though, right? We want credit for what we do. Even when we offer to do something for someone else and they refuse, we want credit for asking, right? We want credit for, doing, for saying, well, hey, at least I wanted to help. We still want credit. We want to be seen as the doer of the good thing. We want to be seen as the person who went out of their way or was willing to be, go out of their way, right? But see, the Pharisees had this ravenous hunger for applause that was highly distasteful to Jesus. Jesus was not a fan. What did Jesus say about them? John chapter 5 and verse 44. He says, you receive glory from one another. And do not seek the glory that comes only from God. John 12, 43. That they love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. So why is hypocrisy such a big deal for us? It, it is kind of an interesting thing. It's because, think about it for a moment. It, it is kind of interesting that hypocrisy is a big deal for us. Because most people labor anonymously, day after day, not being recognized. Most people labor anonymously without fanfare, without attention, not getting the recognition they, they deserve or, or even need or, or even want. So that's kind of interesting that this is a, an issue for us. But I think it's because of this. The problem is that egos need to be fed. And egos have really sneaky ways of getting three square meals a day. Sometimes even really spiritual looking ways. By the way, pastors are really good at it. Be careful, okay? Pastors are really good at it. Um, Paul talked about crucifying the flesh with its 
desires. But he also talked about the pull of earthly things when he was seeking heavenly things and being pulled off to the side by earthly things. Romans 7 talks about it. And the basic idea is that citizens of heaven will deal with this struggle all the time they're on earth. We're very used to it. Pleasing the Father, not being a hypocrite. It's a worthy goal. Worthy goal on Father's Day. Pleasing the Father. Um, But I'll tell you what, uh, pleasing the Father and not being a hypocrite does include knowing something that is very important. Read the verse again with me, uh, Matthew 6, 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with who? With your Father who is in heaven. So you want to please the Father. You want to not be a hypocrite. You've got to know whether or not you have a heavenly Father. You've got to know that. You've got to have that answer questioned, settled in your own heart and mind. Is God your heavenly Father? Now, the word Father, the, the term, the, the, the title Father, occurs ten times in the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Ten times. Now, when you, think, when you go through the Gospels, what you see is the Gospel writers only refer to God as Father in context of the Messiah, Jesus, and His followers disciples believers he is not the father of all people but he is the father biblically speaking he is the father of jesus and jesus's disciples it's got to be very clear so you've got to know is god your heavenly father so ask these questions do you believe in jesus do you believe in his work on the cross his substitutionary work on the cross when he took our place to pay for our sin do you believe that he died on the cross, that he rose again, that he's coming back, that he is the only way to eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you belong to him? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you related to him by faith? Are you in relationship with him? You can't just say, hey, God's my father because I'm a human being. doesn't work that way. That's twisting the scriptures. You can't just say that. Look what Jesus said. John chapter 14, verse 6, another very well-known verse. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every true believer loves that verse. You can't hear it often enough. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you come to faith in Christ? John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus uh, referring to to jesus says to as many as received him christ to as many as received christ to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name do you know him do you know him if you do god is your heavenly father if you don't god is not your heavenly father you know there's we we live we live with hopes don't we i mean to live without hypocrisy Wow. To, to live without guile. Remember when Jesus uh, said to Nathaniel, uh, uh, Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile? To live without guile. To live without 
any ulterior motive. Wouldn't that be nice? But we live with the same struggle Paul felt, wanting to do the right things, and at the same time struggling, being tempted to do what is wrong. And even cover that up and make it look right. It's like with our kids. Our kids are great. Kids, we love you. By the way, I love it, kids, when you're in here with us. I'll tell you something. It's like our kids, and I'm not blaming our kids. I'll, I'll blame us. They often, okay, we know kids desire to please their parents. That's just so, so obvious. Sometimes for the wrong reasons, okay? Sometimes for the right reasons, and sometimes based on how we have conditioned them to respond to us. To gain our favor. To escape our disapproval. To avoid our anger. To keep being treated like they belong. What they do often is they learn to perform according to our exp- expectations. See, heaven, uh, earthly fathers, we, we show crooked patterns at times and, and give our kids the wrong idea as if uh, performance is all that matters in being accepted. What are fathers called to do? 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's look at this, and then we'll talk about what our heavenly father does. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul, defending his ministry, he says this in verse 11, just as you know, in context of how, be, how upright they had behaved, how, how godly they had been among them, he says, just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Fathers are called to, to exhort their children to uh, to, to give them correction and then to encourage them, not to discourage them, but also to testify to them of God's grace so that they would walk and live in a way that pleases God. That's what a, a father is, is called to do. Fathers are called to, to present their kids to God. They're called to, to pray for them and to protect them and, and to provide for them and to prepare them for life. And many Christian fathers have done that. And we, we can see a long line of godly men. And, and many sincerely try to do that. But many have not. Many have not. Many do not. You know, there are good examples, and there are also many fathers, even those who profess faith in Christ, who deeply wound the ones they're called to shepherd and, 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 and nurture. Fathers, you know, we've got to be careful of shirking our responsibilities and to abdicate our role in our family as shepherd and provider. But we also got to beware of fulfilling our responsibilities just to be noticed. Well, I'm just going to do this. This is what I know I'm supposed to do. See, here's the thing. We fail those who count upon us and love us, but our Heavenly Father, God, our Heavenly Father, Never fails us. He's always good. He's always kind. He's always fair. He is not partial to any. We've got to get our kids a vision of our Heavenly Father. We can make the contrast. Kids, you see how I am on a a daily basis? Okay. Well, I'm trying to be like God, but this is how He's really like. Oh, wow. What a big difference. (laughs) Um, You know, God is not partial to any. Peter learned that lesson the hard way. Acts chapter 10. 
He learned that the person from any nation who does what is right and comes to God is welcome to him. Those who believe in Jesus are welcome. But you've got to ask that question. Is God your heavenly father? Got to get it settled. Is God your heavenly father? The second question that goes along with that, if you say, well, yeah, God's my heavenly father. I've come to faith in Christ. Wonderful. Then is there any fruit? Is there any fruit of that relationship? Any evidence, any proof that you belong to God? If it were a crime, would you be convicted of being a Christian? Would there be enough evidence to convict? Now, I realize that sometimes no one can tell but God alone. It's just we go through stages in life, and sometimes we are uh, not really obvious uh, in terms of our faith. But I'll tell you this, that the fruit is not the main substance. It's what's in the heart. And I know that sometimes what's in the heart doesn't come out in the life, and we go through struggles and issues. But, but the thing is sometimes change comes more slowly to others. Uh, but, but is there any family resemblance? Uh, John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So in your life, it is, do, you, do you have love for others in the body of Christ? That's one way to, to see if there's any fruit. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there patience? Is there kindness? Are you connected to other people in relationships? Are you relating to them in supportive relationships, not just sucking someone dry because you're so needy? Is iron sharpening iron? Are you spurring one another on to love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10 says? Those are the questions we've got to ask. If, if, if we want to say, well, we, we want to have a reward with our Heavenly Father, well, what kind of fruit's coming out? Let's, um, let's wrap this up. If, if you don't want to be a hypocrite, if you could follow this simple rule, this one, one simple rule. Okay, here we go. Show when tempted to hide. I'll explain this. Show when tempted to hide. Hide when tempted to show. A.B. Bruce said that. Show when tempted to hide. Hide when tempted to show. What does that mean? Let your light shine when you lack courage and want to hide it. But hide when you want to shine. The basic idea behind the teaching in, in Matthew 6, 1, you know, and Matthew 5, 16, has to do with those two issues. First, our tendency to look in the mirror. Our tendency towards vanity. Uh, wanting people to see. And, and our tendency, on the other hand, to be afraid to admit we belong to Jesus. And, and by the way, next week we're going to look at that whole thing about don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What, what, what is that all? What, who are we supposed to hide from? We take it to mean don't let anyone see. But I think first and foremost, it's don't let yourself see. Keep it from yourself. Keep your good deeds from gaining a foothold in your life so that you start thinking, I am so good. Wow, I'm a really great disciple. Give me a trophy. We blow things out of proportion, and we start wondering, how am I going to be recognized by this? And when it doesn't come, we start uh, finding ways to be recognized for it. But bottom line is this. Beware of doing things for attention. People can, can be fooled. But God knows everything. God sees everything. He knows our motives. And good deeds are supposed to be done. But keep your focus on Jesus in what you do. And rewards will be given or withheld accordingly. 
So engage in the worthwhile versus the worthless. Because Jesus wants you to want to serve him for the right reasons. Jesus wants you to want to serve him for the right reasons. That's the place to start. Well, the worship team's going to come back up right now, and we're going to sing a couple more songs. And, and as they come up, I want to just say one more thing. You know, sometimes we hear of kids having uh, big shoes to fill. Big shoes to fill. Often in the case of expectations in terms of performance or reputation when their parents are very accomplished, you know, in some sense. But let me say this. I, my prayer is that our kids would have big shoes to follow. There's a picture that's going to go up here. I took it uh, out in Tennessee. It's of Michael on a log with his shoes that are very uh, magnified. But our kids are looking to us for the pattern. They're looking to us for the way to live and relate to God and others. And believe it or not, we are like people in the Bible. We are ordinary people who trust an extraordinary God who wants to do extraordinary things in us and through us for his glory. And so may our example be one of trusting God for impossible things, not of setting up impossible expectations for our kids. Not a level of achievement that is, that is a burden to them, but a level of trust that inspires them. May our example raise awareness of how good God is and not how capable we are. May our example call them beyond what the church often settles for and what the world portrays so that they could reach for a truly biblical view of life. May we walk in his steps so that our kids and our grandkids and their kids after that, if Jesus doesn't come back first, that they would walk in his steps. That's our prayer.